1: My name is Ken Harbaugh, and this is a podcast about patriotism. I want to find out what patriotism really means to us in the United States in 2019.
0: That's a hard question. I don't know. No clue. Um, oh, that's a really hard one to answer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that.
1: What does it mean to love your country? Who gets to call themselves a patriot? And does it even matter? I grew up in a military family. I'm the son and grandson of Air Force combat pilots. I was raised on their stories of service and sacrifice and grew up believing that serving in the military was one of the best ways to demonstrate your patriotism. So when it was my turn to show up for my country, I joined the U.S. Navy. I became a pilot. I led recon missions all over the Middle East and off of North Korea, China, and Russia. After nine years, I got out, but I continued to serve by leading several veteran organizations, co-founding The Mission Continues, and serving as president of Team Rubicon Global. I always took it on faith that my love of country spoke for itself. But I would soon learn that my idea of love of country wasn't everyone's. Patriotism is something that
2: should unify our country. But a troubling new poll shows that we are deeply divided. Uh, Whatever happened to American patriotism? The more we normalize disrespect to the national anthem, the easier it will be to disrespect the people who are sworn to protect those ideals.
1: In 2018, I ran as a Democrat for the U.S. House of Representatives in Ohio's 7th Congressional District. Throughout my 18-month-long campaign, I lost count of the number of times my patriotism was challenged. I was running in a district that President Trump won by nearly 30 points, an overwhelming margin. A common refrain deep in Trump country was, Are you an American or are you a Democrat? So, going in, I expected a tough fight for the seat. What I did not anticipate was how my idea of patriotism would be turned into a political weapon against me. For example, I was repeatedly challenged about my decision not to wear an American flag lapel pin. Whenever this happened, often in public, I tried to explain that my record of service should speak for itself, and that a flag pin does not make a patriot. Some people just weren't buying it. Patriotism, for too many, has been reduced to flag pins, or worse yet, it's become a way to attack the other side. I'm thinking of how USA is chanted at Trump rallies in anger, not as a way to unite but is a way to intimidate.
3: USA! All the way! USA!
1: This politicization of patriotism is dangerous for both sides. On the right, self-righteous expressions of patriotism feed a growing tribalism. And on the left, many people are wary of calling themselves patriots for fear of being associated with bigotry and xenophobia. In this podcast, we will explore different aspects of patriotism, service and sacrifice, but also dissent and inclusion. As Barack Obama's speechwriter, John Favreau knows a lot about this. President Obama's patriotism was challenged by many on the right as a way to undermine his character.
0: It's a question that has dogged Barack Obama since he started his run for the White House. Is he patriotic?
2: I've always taken my deep and abiding love for this country as a given. It is what propelled me into public service. It is why I am running for president.
1: I spoke to John to introduce this series because he saw firsthand how our collective sense of patriotism evolved, or perhaps devolved, over the eight years that Obama spent in office. Uh, John Favreau, it is uh, an honor to have you on the show. feels a little weird welcoming you to uh, a show that... Uh, you own so thank you uh, <laughs> on a couple of levels thanks for for making time but thanks for inviting me you you bet more importantly thanks for believing in this for for thinking like I do that a conversation about patriotism is is worth having i would argue now more than ever and of course we're going to talk about how you saw that that conversation evolve or or devolve over the course of your service <laughs> service with President Obama, but I'd like to go back a little earlier to younger sure. John Favreau and, um, and and get a sense of what motivated you to enter a life of of public service, did you ever think of those pursuits, your your work with Habitat or uh, with the with the Welfare Solidarity Project, as
3: patriotic? I don't know if when I was younger I thought about service explicitly as patriotism or explicitly connected to patriotism. But I think what led me to community service, public service. Probably started with my family. You know, my grandfather on my dad's side was a state representative in New Hampshire. I have a lot of uncles who are police officers. My mom was a teacher her whole life. And having so many family members who had decided to give back to their country, I thought that's sort of what you do. And so I went out into the community and performed a lot of service during my time at Holy Cross, but at some point, you know, I was also a political science and sociology major. At some point I began connecting what I was seeing in the local welfare office or whatever service I was performing, I was st- sorry, I started to see the connections between that service and the decisions that were being made in Washington D.C. by politicians. And I thought to myself, if you can somehow influence those decisions you can get at the source of a lot of these problems and injustices that I had been seeing for so long
1: so you somehow make your way from that onto barack obama's speech writing team initially when he was serving as a senator is that right
3: yeah well i mean i should say and this is uh, you know important to the whole discussion about patriotism before i ever started working for barack obama i worked on John Kerry's campaign, and that was my first job right out of college. And on that campaign, what the Democratic Party believed is, okay, well, our patriotism has always been challenged by Republicans. And so probably the most electable candidate that we can nominate is Senator John Kerry, who is a war hero. And, you know, if we nominate essentially a, a war hero, then... The Democratic Party will somehow be inoculated against these attacks on our patriotism and certainly our nominee's patriotism. Uh, of course, that did not happen at all. <laughs> and the most of the 2004 campaign was about John Kerry's service and uh, war record being challenged by Republicans in pretty gross and disgusting and dishonest ways. And I think after that campaign, it was the first time I thought, to rebut charges that we are not patriotic, I don't know that it's enough for Democrats to just say, okay, well, we'll wear those flag pins too, and um, we're going to be just as, you know, we're going to love the flag just as much as you uh, on the Republican side. Like, there's going to be something, we're going to have to do. think about this issue in a fundamentally different way.
1: Did that experience working for uh, John Kerry through the the, the swift boating experience and you to what was going to happen on the Obama campaign. Were you ready for, for the vitriol uh, coming not just from the dark corners of the Republican Party, but from people like Rudy Giuliani, who said, I'm sure you recall, that he didn't think Obama loved his country?
3: I have to say I was. Pretty ready for it. I started off in Obama's Senate office in 2005 as soon as he became a senator. And I can remember the first time that Fox News ran a segment about Barack Obama being educated. Uh, Supposedly he was educated in a madrasa in Indonesia. And so he must not really be American. He must be uh, he must be a foreigner. And also he must be Muslim. And I knew that when Fox declined to correct the record on that, that this was the beginning of what would happen if Barack Obama decided to run for president. And by the way, I should say that it was not just from the Republican Party. Just to prepare for this conversation, I was looking back at some of what happened in 2007, 2008, and um, this was a memo that was written about Barack Obama it also exposes a very strong weakness for him. His roots to basic American values and culture are at best limited. I cannot imagine America electing a president during a time of war who was not at his center fundamentally American in his thinking and in his values. That what? was a memo by Mark Penn to Hillary Clinton. What the hell does the that mean? Primary. I mean, what does fundamentally <laughs> American <laughs> imply? Because because at the beginning of that memo, Penn said, you know, Obama likes to talk about his multiculturalism. He likes to talk about all the different places in the world where his family is from. And then he writes, save it for 2050. <laughs> that is not oh where this God. country is now. And, you know, to Hillary's credit, she, you know, rejected the explicit advice in that memo to have American flags at every event, to call every policy that she came up with the American policy for X or Y. Um, but he did tell her to make sure that every speech she used the line, I was born in the middle of the last century, in the middle of the country to the American middle class, and which is a line that she did use through most of her stump speeches. So it was even something that we dealt with in our own party back then.
1: Well, that's incredibly revelatory. I, I just assumed that that was protecting the right flank. It was an attack, an implicit attack on Obama's.
3: Americanness. Yep, exactly. And and it was a belief that the electorate, not just the Republican electorate but the Democratic electorate would somehow view Obama's heritage and his connection to other countries through his family as somehow un-American. Now you
1: had a huge part to play in crafting the response to that. Did you find yourself having to make compromises or tempted to compromise and assume some of those patriotic ornamentations as a nod to the folks who were pushing you to make those gestures without the substance behind it?
3: Yeah. You know, I think on the margins perhaps, but the reason I didn't feel as much of that pressure as you might think is because of Barack Obama, who he is and how he came onto the national scene which was at the Democratic convention in 2004 during the Kerry campaign as the keynote speaker. And that speech that made him famous at the the 2004 convention, I think what's so special about that keynote address is he essentially redefines patriotism. You know, he talks about his story, right? And he talks about how he has this father from Kenya and this mother from Kansas.
2: I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible."
3: He basically says, in no other country on earth is my story even possible. And that why America is so special, why he is patriotic at his core is because this country gave a kid with the name Barack Hussein Obama, whose father was from Kenya and his mother was from Kansas, the opportunity to stand on that stage as a potential United States senator. And that, in fact, is what real patriotism is. And it's not just wearing a flag pin because the Republicans wear flag pins and will attack you if you don't.
1: Do you think that message has endured? Do you think enough Americans believe that? Because, well, I'll put my biases out there. I think something is coming apart when it comes to patriotism and how we talk about it as a country. What's gone
3: wrong? Look, I think it requires Democrats or people who at least reject the attacks from certain politicians, certain corners of this country about some people being less patriotic than others to constantly make the case. And I don't know that we always make the case. And, and, and you know, you talk about reclaiming patriotism. And, you know, I know you're talking to Mayor Pete Buttigieg for this series. And I know that Pete always talks about sort of reclaiming freedom. That freedom, yeah. The, um, yeah, that the Republican Party doesn't have a monopoly on freedom. And I completely agree with that. And I, and Obama used to talk about that all the time. He would talk about freedom and how they don't have a monopoly on freedom. But I think it goes even beyond that, right? It's not just about saying, OK, the Republican Party talks about freedom, but no, we're the party of freedom as well. It's actually being confident about all the values we hold dear as Democrats, progressive, liberals, whatever you want to call it, and saying, no, 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 these values of diversity, of multiculturalism, of opportunity, these are American values. These are fundamentally American values that connect to the founding documents of this country. And you can't tell us that our values, that our political beliefs, are somehow outside the mainstream of this country, because it's part and parcel of that, and it always has been.
1: President Obama's personal story illustrates that as well as any personal story possibly could. But looking at the arc of his presidency and the speeches he gave, I think he brought that to bear in the policies he advanced and the way he talked about patriotism and I would love your read on his uh, attempts to expand our notions of what it means to love our country. I mean, sometimes he did it explicitly in speeches about patriotism, but I'm really drawn to his more subtle attempts to talk about love of country as as love of your neighbor. I've got a a specific speech in mind, but why don't you take a swing at it first?
3: Well, I, th- I think the most patriotic speech he gave was probably that convention speech in 2004. I think the bookend to that speech, in my mind, and maybe one of my favorite speeches of all time that President Obama gave, which I can say because I was gone and did not help write this one, <laughs> was, in, um, was in 2015 when he went to Selma to uh, celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, when John Lewis and everyone walked across that bridge for civil rights. And that was a speech about patriotism. That was a speech about what it means to be an American fundamentally. And what he did in that speech was he connected the civil rights movement to patriotism, basically arguing that the civil rights movement in this country was maybe the most patriotic movement this country has ever seen. And he has this great passage where he says, what greater expression of faith in the American experiment than this? What greater form of patriotism is there than the belief that America is not yet finished, that we are strong enough to be self-critical, that each successive generation can look upon our imperfections and decide that it is in our power to remake this nation to more closely align with our highest ideals. That's why Selma is not some outlier in the American experience. That's why it's not a museum or static monument or behold from a distance. It is instead the manifestation of a creed written into our founding documents. And then he talks about we the people in order to form a more perfect union. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And, and this is something he did throughout his presidency, which was to connect his beliefs about the country back to the founding and To say, look, during the founding, it was a bunch of uh, white guy slaveholders who, you know, wrote these founding documents. And even as the fact that the men who wrote these documents did not live up to the ideals is basically America in a nutshell is that we laid out these ideals, the promise of this country. We have never fulfilled that promise yet. We have made mistakes along the way, horrible mistakes, the original sin of slavery and everything that goes beyond that. But what makes America unique, what makes us special, what makes us love our country so much is our ability to change it. And that is a very active definition of patriotism that I think is pretty powerful and one that Democrats shouldn't lose hold of.
1: And it's almost... Uniquely American. When you talk about experiments yes. in democracy, I mean, we're the longest living democracy on Earth. We are imperfect, but the magic is, is as you said it, in our ability to reinvent and reflect and
3: change. Well, and you see, I mean, and that's true of movements for freedom all over the world through history is that dissidents have looked to the United States and what has happened here to find inspiration for their own movements of solidarity and freedom and justice, and whether it's taking down the Berlin Wall, whether it's apartheid in South Africa, right? Like, they've seen what happened in the United States, whether it was the revolution, whether it was the Civil Rights Movement, whether it was the New Deal, right? You know, whatever it may be. And um, the fact that we can change our very imperfect country gives inspiration to other people around the world. That's something worth being patriotic about.
1: Do you think... Given the undermining of our role as an exemplar, as a moral leader on that world stage, that we will be able to recover that.
3: I'm, I'm an Obama guy, so I got to say yes. Uh, look, I, I worry about it a lot. I worry about the it's sort of an undercovered story in the Trump era because, you know, we're so focused on what he's doing domestically. But, you know, you talk to my friend Ben Rhodes, uh, who was my speech writing partner in crime and on the National Security Council. You know, Ben travels around the world still today and thinks that the damage is worse than we think. I think people looked at America during the Bush years and thought, okay, what are they doing with this guy? But for Bush, it was sort of confined to, well... He led us into this tragic war in Iraq and he screwed this up so badly. And we just got to get, you know, the Americans will get rid of him eventually. And then Obama comes on the scene for eight years and, you know, our reputation was restored in the world. And then I think the difference with Trump is people are looking at us and saying, "Okay, you you did this. At least half of you chose this man knowing exactly who he is. It's a hard truth, and it's a hard reality to grapple with. But I do think whoever the next president is, if if it's a Democrat, it's going to have to be a big part of her or his job to be traveling around the world constantly and letting the world know that America's back, that our values, our ideals are still worth fighting for, worth defending, and that people should still look to us for inspiration.
1: I got to ask, as... One of the main architects of his message and especially in those moments of crisis as the architect of those responses and helping him be the comforter in chief. How do you do that? How do you write a speech in the wake of something that horrific and and gut-wrenching? And how do you get the words out of your head? I just, Other than numbing yourself to the reality of what happened, I cannot imagine putting pen to paper and doing my
3: job in a moment like that. I try to do the opposite. I try not to numb myself to what happened and actually let myself feel how truly tragic it is. I've cried quite a few times writing speeches for Barack Obama. And I I remember sitting down with him, again, not for Sandy Hook, but when Tucson happened. And as he was talking about what to say at that memorial service, he was like, look, I realize I'm the president and I have a role as the president to sort of comfort the nation and say things that presidents and politicians say at a moment like this. But he's like, as you write this, I would love you all to think of what you'd say at a memorial service if it was your friends, your family, your neighbors who this happened to. He's like, because I want it fundamentally to be human and not to be sort of above it all as a president i wanted to feel like that i am a neighbor going into a community and talking and trying to console people and so it came from him that he wanted to have this feel that was much more human and 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 down to earth than maybe your typical presidential you know memorial service speech
1: yeah as we enter the presidential election season, what do you think Democrats should be doing this time around to reclaim that mantle of patriotism? You talked a few minutes ago about the obligations of citizenship. Yeah. Is that part of it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been saying this on Pots of America sometimes, and, and certainly to every, everyone I know, is I, I am waiting for one of these Democratic candidates. You know, so many of them are, are, are so impressive in so many different ways. And a lot of them have taken it right to Trump. A lot of them have talked about sort of the fundamental economic challenges of our time, which are incredibly important uh, actions on immigrations and very powerful way, like all down the line on all the different issues. I still haven't heard someone bring it all together and talk about what kind of country we want to be in 2020, 2021, and beyond. Forget Donald Trump, right? Like if we if we beat Donald Trump, what do we want America to stand for? What do we want America to look like? I mean, coming out of a Trump presidency, if we come out of a Trump presidency will have all just been through a tragedy really and and something really difficult and the nation won't have healed that's the other important thing to realize right like uh, if trump loses half this country will be pretty upset and look there's going to be a lot of raw feelings There's going to be a lot of pain for what was caused by the administration there's still going to be a lot of division in this country. Uh, this, uh, these, these divisions are certainly not going to heal overnight with the election of the next president. And so I do think now is the time for a lot of these candidates to sort of look towards the future and think about what is it that connects us as Americans? I think uh, Mark Twain said, you know, patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it. <laughs> so yeah. the government part aside, which we're all constantly disagreeing about what is it about this country that all of us love and i think a democrat should be able to articulate that last
1: question what's the greatest act of patriotism that you've ever witnessed
3: i i i mean i don't know if it's it's something that i i witnessed but we got to the white house and it seemed like we were imposters <laughs> for a little while, and I remember walking into the Oval Office, all of us that had been in the campaign with Obama, and we sort of looked around like, what are we all doing here? And the weight of what was happening and what our new roles would be was not readily apparent for a little while. Partly it was because there was the financial crisis and we were just working around the clock and we were just trying to get through the days and and make sure the country didn't fall apart. I can remember the first time that Barack Obama traveled to Dover, Air Force Base to greet flag-draped coffins um, coming off a military plane. And when I saw him after that, and I sort of, I suddenly saw the weight of the office on his face, And, and also, and he talked about this too, this sort of deep, deep appreciation for the men and women who serve this country and who sacrifice for this country sometimes with their lives. And like intellectually, I had always grasped that. Sense of service and sacrifice uh, made by uh, people in the in the military, but it hadn't really hit home to me until that first trip by Obama to Dover. And after that, you think about it a lot more.
1: We'll be right back after this. Crooked
2: Minis are brought to you by Boosted. Getting from point A to point B means spending more time waiting than moving. If you're sick of waiting to get where you're going, let Boosted give you a lift. Boosted's vehicle-grade electric skateboards and scooters are the modern solution to your transportation woes. I'm more of a scooter guy. I'm not a skateboard guy, to be honest. But, you know, every, there's two kinds of people in this world. Scooter people and skateboard people. You're scooter your scooter, Kyle Skateboard. With a 22-mile range and a max speed of 24 miles per hour, Boosted is perfect for both running to the store and traveling across town. Designed to provide a luxurious experience, it's no wonder that Boosted was one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2018. With five options to pick from, including their new scooter, the Boosted Rev, there's a personal electric vehicle that's tailor-made for you. Starting at $61 per month with financing, there's no better way to change how you move than now. Right now, Boosted is offering our listeners $75 off the purchase of an electric vehicle. When you use the code CROOKEDMINIS at checkout, go to BoostedBoards.com and use crooked minis at checkout to get $75 off your vehicle boostedboards.com promo code crooked minis $75 you get the you get the idea scoot to the savings get boosted scoot to the savings
1: now I'd like to talk to someone whose sense of service has been twofold Tammy Duckworth's decision to serve in the army and as a member of both the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate is the embodiment of patriotism Senator Duckworth, how are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. Please call me Tammy.
1: It is great to have you on the show. I understand we're catching you in between votes, is that right?
0: Yes, yes. We're in a series of, I think, four votes tonight.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for, for making time for us. Your life is... Is such an inspiration to so many people. Uh, to begin with your your bio, it's like a litany of firsts: first Thai American elected to Congress, first female double amputee in the Senate, first senator to give birth while in office. Uh, I could I could go on, but <laughs> I, I
0: wasn't trying to be the first female double amputee. <laughs> trust me. <laughs>
1: Well, I want to I wanna talk about that at some point, pilot to pilot. Um, uh-huh. But I want to go back to the decision in grad school, of all places, to commit to joining the military. I mean, you had finished <laughs> your undergraduate degree. You're at George Washington University. Mm-hmm. Being a graduate student is not exactly the, the, the time and place most people <laughs> decide to go join the Army. What was going through your head?
0: Well, I had grown up in Asia post-Vietnam, and so I had always wanted to become an ambassador. Mm. I wanted to join the Foreign Service, and um, I was at GW because they had the highest uh, pass rate for the Foreign Service exam. Uh, this was in the early 90s, uh, 89, 90, 90, And while I was there, I noticed that So many of the people I gravitated towards in my unit in terms of friendships were all military. They were either vets or, you know, they're on the GI Bill or they were currently serving active duty folks who were being sent there to get their master's degree. And right in the middle of the time I was there, the Berlin Wall came down. And I remember watching at the time all of these families running for the border, you know, these East German families, the Czechoslovakians who uh, grabbed whatever they owned, stuffed it in bags that they could carry and ran for the trains to run for freedom because they didn't know whether the wall was going to go back up and they would once again be locked behind the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being so proud of my country and that we stood along with our NATO allies for democracy and freedom and these people were trying to get there. And in talking with my classmates, uh, these veterans. They said, you know, if you want to join the foreign service, why don't you learn something about the military? Why don't you just take some ROTC classes just to learn? And uh, so off I went to cadet basic training and believe it or not, fell in love with the army while getting yelled at by drill sergeants. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that happens. I don't know how, but I've I know, heard that right? before. I, I'm, I'm curious when you think about the feelings you felt, because I grew up in a military family yes, too, and I, I visited East Berlin when it was still East Berlin. I was a 10 year old kid and I mean talk about a terrifying experience, seeing that wall and knowing what was behind it. yeah, but that experience of seeing families rushing the border to try to to find safety and freedom, yes, uh, I'm being a little provocative intentionally here. Do you see any parallels? with what is going on right now and families trying to make it to America to be free, to be safe.
0: Very much so. I wrote an op-ed on on the need for us to accept Syrian refugees. You know, I have a 13-month-old baby girl and a four-year-old, and I can only imagine gathering my babies in my arms and everything that I own, strapping it to my back and walking across mountains and desert and getting to a sea and then putting my babies into a rubber dinghy to try to make it to Greece or someplace, because that is the safest thing that I could do for them rather than stay where I am. It's
1: obvious to so many people that you bring to the job of senator for Illinois, the perspective of someone who's been on the front lines. When you came back from Iraq, your recovery was long and hard. But at some point, you made a decision to continue your service to your country.
0: My desire to serve my country never went away. I woke up at Walter Reed, and I think one of the first conversations I had with my husband after I found out I lost my legs was, put me to work, I want to go back to my unit. My unit is still downrange, you know, strap artificial legs on me and get me back in my blockhawk as soon as you can, because my guys are still down there getting shot at. And, and if you ask any American service member who's wounded, they all say the same thing. Send me back into the fight. Send me back. Not because well, you want to be in the fight, but because you want to be with your unit. and You want to be with your comrades. And you don't want them to be in danger and you be in the safety of this hospital being cocooned in the U.S. Because that's how I felt. And uh, I went through a really dark period in the, probably the first couple of weeks because the doctors and nurses kept talking about an accident, an aviation accident. And they didn't call it yeah. a shoot down. They called it the accident. So I thought that after we got hit, that I failed to land the aircraft, and I caused an accident, and that's why I lost my legs, and that I didn't do my job as a pilot, and I was devastated. And for me, it was important because I had passengers. It wasn't until I saw my crew chief, um, as we were headed to go into the emerg- into the operating room, they... they First time I saw him since we were both wounded in a his gurney, I, I saw his name on the board, and then I said, that's my crew chief, that's my crew chief, he was sitting right behind me. At Walter Reed? At Walter Reed, going into the operating room. So I,
1: you had bounced from Iraq to, what, Ramstein, and it yeah. wasn't until Walter Reed that you saw?
0: That I saw my, my crew chief again. Wow. And, and they said, well, let me roll you next to him. So they rolled our two gurneys next to each other so we could talk to each other. I just started bawling, and I said, "I'm so sorry, man. I, I I crashed the aircraft. You're hurt. It's my fault." And he just looked at me like, "What are you crazy? <laughs> you and Dan landed the aircraft. You did everything that you that you were supposed to do. You you the two of you 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 saved us. Dan saved us. And knowing that I did my job until I passed out was all I needed. And that for me was when I turned the corner, and that's when I realized that
1: everything was going to be okay. Can you describe? what that moment was like when you realized uh, you're flying nap of the earth or, or in a hover yeah. and the world explodes underneath you
0: oh well nap of the earth uh 10 feet above the trees um standard flight profile i heard the tap 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 of the small arms fire um mm-hmm. probably ak-47s on um the fuselage of the aircraft right outside my door. We, we flew doors off so <laughs> i heard the tap 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 and i said fuck dan we've been hit and as soon as those words left my mouth, boom, there was a giant fireball in my lap. Um, cockpit is filled with smoke. Uh, I lose everything on my instrument panel. I mean... You're talking about
1: being aware of losing your instruments in the moment you've lost your legs. Yeah. That is an extraordinary thing for most people who've not been in that situation to imagine.
0: I didn't know that I'd lost my legs. I didn't know that I that my arm was hanging, my right arm was hanging by basically the skin. Um, I was just trying to fly my aircraft. I... Made my call out to my crew. Nobody answered. Um, well, because we'd lost our avionics, um, so I thought I was the only one that was not hurt. That I was the only one flying the aircraft. So I did everything I could to land it, and Dan did everything he could to land it, um, and and we got her on the ground. But you know, the real hero of this day is Chief Warrant Officer Dan Milberg. Um, the last thing I remember is um, I saw that Dan had not shut. Completed the emergency engine shutdown, and I raised my left hand to pull the PCLs, so the power control levers, back fully yeah. to shut the aircraft down. And I think that was the last bit of um, blood loss that I, my body could tolerate, yeah. and then I was out. But they revived me, and they said they talked to me at um, the emergency room in Baghdad. I, I don't remember that.
1: At some point, you find yourself at Walter Reed contemplating what a life is going to look like yeah. from that point on, and you meet Bob Dole. I did. What was that first
0: conversation like? Well, pretty amazing, because he was there going, I think he'd broken his shoulder or something, and he was going through therapy, sitting on the therapy mats. with us. There were so many wounded at the time that we couldn't even have a therapy mat to yourself. We shared the mats two or three or four per mat. And a mat is like the size of a king-size bed. Mm-hmm. So you should really have a mat to yourself, but, we, but there were so many of us amputees and wounded that we actually shared mats as we were working out. And Bob Dole was just there, like everyone else. And most of the young kids didn't know. And he was just, you know, Lieutenant Dole. That's how he introduced himself to everyone else. And he was just like challenging all of the young guys, you know. He'd be like, I can do Ten sit ups, you know, and when they were whining about doing five and and he just really inspired me. I knew exactly that he'd gone through all of this after World War Two and and he and Daniel Inouye and, and, and Senator Hart, you know, came together after World War Two and did amazing things for this country after each of their sacrifices in World War Two. And so he really um was someone I very much admired and looked up to.
1: So it's safe to say that one of the primary inspirations for your service in Congress was a giant of the Republican Senate, Bob Dole. Yes, yes. Can you imagine, given the partisanship we're experiencing today, that still happening?
0: I really want to say yes, but having haven't been here now for two and a half years. I, I have to tell you, I'm pretty depressed because I don't see the United States Senate that Bob Dole spoke about. I don't see the Senate, those relationships in this time period in a nation where there's such deep divides and, and to have a commander-in-chief who really stokes a real lack of courtesy and consideration and and between folks that you you know may not agree with. Daniel Inouye, um, uh, the Medal of Honor recipient, a great senator from Hawaii, um, and Bob Dole were incredibly good friends, and they recovered in the same hospital after World War II, and they each went home, Bob Doe, to Kansas, Inouye, to Hawaii, and they both eventually became United States Senators, and they together passed some amazing legislation uh, in this country, and that friendship is what I look for here, and I'm going to continue to look for it. Um, I've I've started to make some friends and and reach out, but it's slow going right now because just it's so poisoned here. What do you attribute
1: that Toxic environment, too, is the rancor coming from the top.
0: I, I mean, I don't want to put all of the blame at, at the president's doorstep, but I have to say that he doesn't help. But I think his is the politics of dividing us, not of uniting us. I can only imagine if previous presidents, whether it was President Obama or, or George H.W. or George W. Bush, said some of the things that, that President Trump says, I don't think that we would have stood for it. And yet, here we are. We've been so gaslighted that this is now the new norm. It's just not acceptable.
2: We'll be back after these messages. Crooked Minis is brought to you by DoorDash. What's the one dish from your favorite restaurant that you can never recreate at home? Revenge. <laughs> What's, what if someone it's brought it right to your coal. door? <laughs> Revenge is a dish best served by DoorDash. It connects you to all your favorite restaurants <laughs> in your city. Ordering is easy. Just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and your Dasher will bring it right to you. on Dasher.
3: We're using DoorDash tonight. We are. This is. uh, You're hearing Mm -hmm. this uh, the night of the second Democratic debate, and you know Juliet just sent around the menu, Thai food, uh, Thai food tonight, and it's coming via DoorDash. (laughs) Need your whole life story.
2: Not only is that burger
3: place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects. DoorDash
2: connects with with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the United. Oh my God! Just the ill-timed. Uh, order from your local go-to's or choose from your favorite chains like chipotle wendy's chick-fil-a and the cheesecake factory don't worry about dinner let dinner come to you with doordash right now our listeners get five dollars off their first order of fifteen dollars or more when you download the doordash app and enter the promo code crooked minis that's five dollars off your first order when you download the doordash app from the app store and enter the promo code crooked minis again crooked minis five dollars off your first order from doordash
3: Three great words. Free. Fries. Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. ba 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 one-time on
1: Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12 Excludes tax. Must update rewards. You have taken a very vocal leadership role in an effort that I think might present part of a solution, and that is national service opportunities for young people, and in particular, the sponsorship of the... 21st Century American Service Act. Yes. In keeping, of course, with your legacy of service, this idea of giving as many a, Americans who want the chance to serve their country the the opportunity to do so. Can you talk about why that's so important to you?
0: It's important to me because when we had a draft, um, even though you had folks who, you know, use their privilege um, uh, to get one, two, three, four, five, five. Defer- <laughs> five deferments uh, to get out of service... Uh, uh, you still had people who ended up in the military where you could have someone from Queens, New York serving next to someone from Florida next to someone from, you know, uh, Effingham, Illinois, for example. And so you got to learn about people from different circumstances and different backgrounds in yourself. And that's really not happening as much anymore without the draft. And I certainly don't support the draft, but I want to support young people having the opportunity to serve this country, to get a little skin in the game of our democracy. And the idea being that when you turn 18, you would get a letter in the mail that says, congratulations on turning 18. Here are all the ways you can serve your nation. You can join the military and you can get XYZ, you know, uh, tuition, uh, money for tuition for college. You go to your local Habitat for Humanity, whatever it is. And, but you would know what it would be. And you can also choose, no, I don't want to serve my country. Don't send me any more letters. But if you don't opt out, every two years until you turn 30, you get a letter that says, hey, you're t- you're now 22, you're now 26, you're now 28. How about serving your country? And it just give people a chance to serve. Because I've met a lot of young people who didn't even know about the opportunities to serve. I just feel like there needs to be more skin in the game. You know, those of us who wore the uniform, I feel like we have a little bit more skin in the game in this democracy and in, in, in this nation. And I just want more young people to feel ownership.
1: I want to go back to something you said when you were describing that moment when the RPG hit and uh, you saw that fireball at your feet, and yet you still endeavored to fly that helicopter and get it on the ground and save your crew. And I know the impulse, being a fellow aviator, is to attribute that to your training and to say that, you know, I just did what everyone and anyone else in, in that situation would have done. But can we acknowledge that at least part of the reason is that you're a total
0: badass? <laughs> hey, I never <laughs> turned down being called a badass. But but, but really, the, the real badass that day was the warrant officer who actually did land the aircraft and then saved my life. So uh, Chief Milberg is, uh, is the hero.
1: So that was Chief Dan Milberg, yes. right?
0: Uh-huh.
1: I want to turn that into a question because you now hold one of 100 votes in the Senate and you bring to that responsibility an enormous moral authority as someone who has literally had skin in the game. How do you bring that rare moral authority to bear?
0: I have the ability to get my colleagues to listen who maybe would not have otherwise. I think that I can say I've been downrange and that decision you just made, this is what it means. How
1: has it come to be that this endorsement of an aggressive military posture has become so associated with patriotism? When I think you and I probably would argue it's the antithesis of patriotism.
0: I agree. I, I think it is. The unthinking spending of our nation's most precious resource, and that's the men and women who are willing to die for us. You know, when you talk to people who've served, you know, the people least wanting to go to war are our troops because they truly know what the cost is. And especially if you come from the families that continue to serve again and again in this post-draft era where you have entire swaths of the nation that have never worn the uniform, whose parents never worn the uniform, whose grandparents never worn the uniform. Hmm. I've got buddies downrange right now who are on their eighth deployment their eighth deployment, and they're National Guardsmen. Let's be responsible to them for spending their lives, spending their anniversaries away from their families and their time away from their children, because they will go, and they will show up, and they will salute, and they will do the job we ask them to do, and they will be proud to do it, and they will lay down their lives for us. So the least we can do back here in the halls of Congress is have some respect for that and not waste that patriotism that that they're truly showing and living every single day.
1: Do you ever feel yourself or your patriotism being challenged because you're you're taking on the preconceived notions of what uh, support for our military endeavors should look like? Have you ever felt your patriotism itself challenged?
0: Well, I've seen them attempt to do it. <laughs> and most often it happens during political campaigns, right? Uh, in all three of my uh, campaigns, whether it was my first uh, unsuccessful House campaign or my campaign in 2012... Um, In my first campaign in 2006, my opponent said that I would be someone who would cut and run on the Iraq War. (laughs) Um, And I said, yeah, no. (laughs) I have never cut and run. And in fact, I stood my ground so much that I left my feet there.
1: Um, And doesn't that critique often come from people who have never stared down the barrel of a rifle?
0: Yes. And in 2012, my opponent said that I talked about the military too much. Um, and I said, well, I'm, I'm passionate about our veterans, and I'm military men and women. Um, and, of course, I'm going to talk about them all the time because they deserve to be talked about all the time and, and the sacrifices that they make. Mm-hmm. And most recently, uh, uh, not this past State of the Union, but the previous State of the Union, the president, um, I think, referred to those who did not stand to clap for him as traitors. <laughs> Just because yeah, we remember. didn't support, you know, uh, how he chose, he was choosing to um, uh, spend the Department of Defense budget, and, and frankly, yeah. I'm not going to let a five time draft dodger uh, dictate to me when I should sit and stand, and certainly not going to dictate to me how we should take care of our troops.
1: What is the greatest example of patriotism you've ever witnessed?
0: Probably somebody standing up to speak their mind. That's what America is about, right? We were founded because a bunch of ragtag colonies stood up and said, we disagree with the king. Those who are willing to stand up and speak their minds and bear the consequences of it are the true patriots, the ones who um, stand their ground, because the most American thing you can do is to challenge authority.
1: John and Tammy are only two voices among many throughout this series who will share their thoughts and insights into how we can take back patriotism. It cannot exist without dissent, without inclusion. It is hollow without reckoning and empathy. That is what it means to reclaim patriotism. On the next episode, I explore the role that dissent plays in patriotism.
0: You know, uh, Ken, it was very curious to me because I realized then, which I really hadn't thought about before, that uh, a lot of the uh, members of uh, a lot of Americans uh, do not understand that what the Constitution requires, and that's dissent. And that's part of our democracy. If you don't agree, you don't always have to go with the flow. Uh, That's supposed to be the beauty of democracy, that you can offer a different point of view.
1: That's next time on Reclaiming Patriotism. This is a production of Crooked Media. Thank you to Jacob Zions and Chris Marvin for production assistance. Sean Cherry was our studio booker. Daniel Carissimi is our editor. Jeff Gates and Kyle Seglin were our engineers this week. See you next time.